the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is the Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today I want to ask you about free speech and the future of the legal profession. This is motivated by a recent kerfuffle at Yale Law School, where about a week ago, the Yale Federal uh, Federal Society hosted an event um, with participants from the American Humanist Association and the Alliance Defending Freedom, the ADF, two groups that usually don't see eye to eye, but which collaborated on a Supreme Court case, a religious uh, liberty and and freedom uh, Supreme Court case, which they won eight to one. Uh, the Federal Society uh, at Yale said, you know, this this event was to illustrate that a liberal atheist and a conservative Christian could find common ground on free speech issues. Now, instead, what happened was that about 120 Yale law students protested and disrupted the event because of the participation of the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, a group whom they do not like. Um, this is on the heels, of course, of a similar protest at UC Hastings Law School a couple weeks ago of, of Ilya Shapiro. And Richard, what I, I want to know is, how typical is this behavior at, at law schools now? Is this the norm? Should we be expecting this from now on? I don't think it's the norm, but I think that we can expect a regular set of staccato-like interferences. Uh, one has to put this into perspective. The Federalist Society is an extremely active society. It has chapters at virtually every major law school in the country, probably over 150 chapters. Uh, many of them are relatively energetic. So what they do is they will put on perhaps as many as uh, uh, one event every 10 days or one a week or one every other week. So you start adding it up and you try to figure out the ones that sort of go without a hitch, you're probably talking about, you know, a thousand plus events a year. And then what you do is you get a couple of outliers in which everything seems to get together in the wrong way. And you hear these kinds of protests. You also see that increasingly, I think there's some kind of pushback against these protests. So you said there are 120 Yale law students, that's 20% of the student body or some such number. It's not as though there was 100%. There were a lot more people out there on the picket lines about uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, when he was up. So I I don't think you could start to say that it's a complete trend in any way, shape or form. Uh, The question then is, somebody's going to ask, is like, you know, why is this good or why is it bad? You mentioned something which I think is worth talking about, which is some of the religious liberty cases. And I think the Alliance for the Defense of Freedom, whatever, I think I've worked with them on the past. And the, the kinds of cases that we're talking about are not the sort of cases that should get anybody on the left upset. Uh, one of the things that typically happens is that the government controls large amounts of public lands, for example. And what it does is it tries to basically do its development projects in one form or another. And the religious groups come forward. Um, and what they say is, look, this is a sacred ground to some Indian tribe. And it's just wrong for you to desecrate this. The argument on the other side, which dates back to Sandra Day O'Connor, was something to the effect, well, this is government property and there are no private rights that run against the government. So if we decide to take down a holy burial ground and wreck it, uh, there's nothing you could do to stop it. And myself, I've always taken the opposite position on this. I think that there are kind of uh, soft and gooey rights, uh, implied easements of practice and so forth, and that these should be recognized much as the way they were in ancient times, uh, customary rights dominating legal title, and that you should really push back. And and so what happens is many of the religious groups who are not at all 
Indian worshippers in any way, shape, or form have written briefs um, in putting forward that position. I think I've probably signed two or three of those briefs within the last year or so, just as I've signed many briefs defending the photographers and the flower arrangers and so forth, who decide that given their religious scruples, they don't wish to participate in a gay wedding or something of that sort. Okay, so that's the way it starts. And then on the other side, there are lots of groups, which are Indian champion groups, who should take the same position. So I think it's a very important thing to syndicate where it is in a very divisive society, uh, there are claims that come together. And what's so frightening about the Yale situation is you now see people saying, we don't even care what the position is. We just want to know that we don't like you. You've been on some hate group list and so forth. So we're just not going to listen to anything we say. And we believe that we're exercising our free speech when we disrupt your meetings. Uh, Of course, if they run a meeting and somebody on the other side disrupted it, we know exactly what it would be. It would be disruption. So I think it's a little bit critical and a little bit sorry. I don't think the Yale administration came down on behalf of the protesters in this case. Uh, Heather Gerken, the dean, is very resourceful and she's constantly buffeted, but I think the line held on this case. And it's not a First Amendment case, uh, Tom, uh, because the First Amendment doesn't bind private institutions in their private capacity. Uh, But what it is, is Yale has its own internal norms, and those internal norms do not allow people to bluster and to interfere with other operations. And I think if a student violates one of those norms, it's a very bad reflection on the student who does it. And I think that the university is entitled to take disciplinary action in whatever way it sees fit, including expulsion, including writing letters to the file, which will then be sent to the bar examiner is down the road and so on. I mean, they do have these kinds of resources. It's always a very difficult question as to whether or not you want to exercise those particular problems. One of the things that we know about any theory of punishment is it talks about a principle of proportionality, but that only says that more severe crimes should get more severe punishment. It doesn't tell you what the actual punishment should be. So it's an ordinal relationship. It's not a cardinal relationship. And you don't punish ordinally. You punish cardinally. That is, you have to give a particular number so many years, so many days. You can't punish people in utiles or things of that sort. So they're always up against this. I refuse to get panicked about this situation, uh, but I, I refuse to greet it with indifference either. I think one has to constantly speak against it. And the importance of the speak is to make the behavior more pariah-like. And when you make it pariah-like, that it's really crossing the line in some form, you're going to reduce the number of its incident. Um, In general, I'm not in favor of strong government repression at this particular point in time. I don't think things have merited that kind of a situation. I think it's disappointing to watch this kind of behavior. I think it's troublesome, but I don't think there's a full-blown crisis that's coming out of this stuff today. I want to push back on something you said. You suggested, you know, it's 120 students. It's not the whole student body. And so that's at least um, an indication that it's not maybe a trend. But after this happened, about 400 students now have signed an open letter at Yale Law School. It's, I think, two-thirds of the student body or so um, condemning, you know, the actions of the, the university and, 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 and the rest of it. I, I want to read you uh, one of the, uh, the quotations that was in the Yale Daily News from one of the protesters. You're a ringer. I'm a ringer. Yeah, but this is this is what they said. I think that it's troubling when Yale Law School, which presents itself as the nation's top law school, doesn't recognize that protest is a valid political expression and also protected speech. 
It's just ironic that students who showed up to engage in free speech, either by asking questions or protesting the event, were faced with armed police, which came in after the speakers were finished speaking and didn't feel safe leaving because they'd been blocked to enter. And that's a whole other thing. I guess my, my question here, Richard, is I, I want to know the limits of, of protest. Is protesting in a way that interrupts an event a valid form of free speech? I mean, how should they have gone about uh, making their, their protests known. I mean, the usual way in which you start to do this is if you attend the meeting, you remain silent. You may, in some cases, hold up a sign, uh, but you're not allowed to talk so that the people who speak are not able to give their say. Um, one of the things about freedom of speech is it's not a solipsistic doctrine. When you claim freedom of speech, you have to recognize the same degree of freedom on the other side. And these students, if they were to run a counter event, which conservative students then decided to disrupt, they they would be very indignant about the fact that they were not allowed amongst their own groups to say what they want. These are private organizations and they have rules of the road. They have Robert's rules of orders and so forth. And the rules about protests do not allow you when you go into a private room to disregard whatever rule other people set for the successful this. So imagine what they say is, well, you know, we disagree with a lot of things that goes on in Congress. We're going to go into the session and make sure that nobody can speak and have debate in the ordinary fashion. I think people would regard that as criminal behavior. In this case, it's not going against a government agency. It's inside the school. Uh, But I think, in fact, what the Yale Law students have to do is they actually have to learn some First Amendment law uh, rather than to do this. Uh, It is pretty clear that the First Amendment gives no countenance to this kind of behavior. Um, when you're starting to justify uh, actions that uh, go against the government order. Uh, if the government says that you have to leave a place and that you can't protest and you can't throw firebombs, out they go and so on. So I don't think that this is a First Amendment issue. Uh, it's not against government anyhow, so it's just a private institution. Uh, but the basic norm is you cannot have civilized discourse if one group is free to disrupt everybody else in speaking and then demands absolute quiet and respect when they want to talk. Uh, The constant position in the First Amendment area is you don't allow restrictions to be imposed on a viewpoint basis. And that's what these people are doing. They are saying if those viewpoints are terrible, so we can do this. They want to come after us. Well, our viewpoints are wonderful. And so they can't touch it. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question since you've already pulled a sly one on me. Okay. already is, you know, uh, just when you're starting to do these kinds of things, can you think of any instance that has occurred in which conservative students have disrupted a liberal event? You know, not off the top of my head. However, Richard, this is this. I I believe this has to have happened. Can you? I I, I do not know of a single event. Um, I don't know of one. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, uh, but I think what has happened under these things is that the uh, conservative students understand that if they were to engage in this kind of conduct, the consequences would be a lot more severe. And I think many of them are actually more committed to the neutral version of what freedom of speech is, rather than to a view which says freedom of speech is just another doctrine that we invoke in order to advance our political causes. So I do not know any. I do know many liberals who are very much opposed to the kind of thing that happened in this case. So I'm not saying it's a straight left-right situation, because it surely is not. Uh, but on that one point, I can't do it. Now, let me sort of put it to you another way. Uh, think about the Supreme Court justices who've been put up for the heat. And what's the kind of treatment? Well, you know, we go back to Mr. Bork, and that was a full court press. Go back to Mr. Clarence Thomas, that was a full court press. You then go to 
The next appointment was Ruth Ginsburg. It was a celebration. There was no resistance whatsoever. Then it was Steve Breyer. Uh, there was some modest titters of disagreement, but the thing went completely through. You then wait a little while. I think the next one to come up was Alito. And there was a you know, fairly strong, but not wildly uncivil situation. The same thing was true with Justice um, Roberts when he was confirmed for treat. Uh, more heat than in the other cases. And then when you get to the recent type situations, well, um, and you look at Kagan and Sotomayor, those were essentially cakewalks. Uh, when you got to Gorsuch, there was a lot of opposition. When you got to Kavanaugh, it reached deafening levels and was gone completely inappropriate. The Barrett thing had the embarrassment of Chuck Schumer attacking her veracity on the relationship of church to state. And she was subject to some fairly powerful criticism, but not what I would say of epic variety. And with the Judge Jackson coming up, my view about it is it will be a very civil debate and that uh, she will be confirmed with some Republican votes. And so you're trying to pick out the high points. They're all on the other side, um, of which the three most notorious with a situation with respect to Bork, with respect to Thomas, and with respect to Kavanaugh, there is nothing that's analogous on the other side that I am aware of. So I do think there's some kind of an asymmetry in this case. It's also true that, you know, you get other kinds of vilifications like of Donald Trump and of Flynn, um, which go to epic proportions. And you're very hard pressed to find Republicans doing personal vendettas to give you the kind of interesting case with Garland, one of the things that Mitch McConnell refused to do was to schedule a hearing, which was within his rights, whether you like it or not. And the great advantage of that is we did not have the spectacle of all sorts of people writing out and saying outrageous things about Merrick Garland in order to prove that we have to dismiss him for cause. And I don't like that. This was a straight political dispute. And when you didn't give the hearing, you weren't saying that he was an unfit man or a terrible human being. What you said is we think that we can do better politically by taking this gamble. And amazingly enough, they won. Most people thought they would lose and that you would get an even further left candidate uh, when it turned out that Hillary walked to the presidency after the situation. So I do think, in effect, on the willingness to use this kind of power, it's to the left. Uh, my colleague at Chicago, Todd Henderson, wrote a piece defending the Calvin reports on this recently today, I think, in the uh, what you call it in the Wall Street Journal. Good, sensible, meat and potatoes piece in which he reminded that all the protests that took place in the 1960s on the University of Chicago campus were from the left. None of them were from the right. Um, racist Banfield, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. I was in the room when those things were said um, back in the early 1970s when I first joined the University of Chicago faculty. So I do think there's an asymmetry on this, and I would urge people on the left to think very hard about whether or not they want to have that dubious distinction. Let's uh, close by by looking to the future. Um, one of the reactions I saw all over the place to the um, protests at Yale were, this isn't some small law school. This is Yale, which sends students to clerkships. Uh, it sends students to become professors and teach everywhere else. It sends students to uh, very large, you know, important, huge firms uh, to work on, on legal uh, legal teams. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Meta, Google, and and the rest of them. Is our future one where I, people continue to, I guess, um, shut down debate because of viewpoints as opposed to, uh, you know, 
getting into the actual issues? Do you think we're just going to start segregating into, you know, I use this technology because they think like I do and they don't censor my opinions versus going over here? I mean, what's our future look like? Um, I don't think we know. I mean, the Yale law students, many of them don't go into the practice of law at all. Um, In fact, there's a very strong tradition of them becoming writers, intellectuals, political types of one sort or another. Um, Yale is not have, it has the fancy ratings. I'm a graduate of the Yale Law School. I don't think in effect that in terms of the seriousness of its scholarship and the productivity, it deserves that ranking. In terms of the selectivity of its students, it certainly has a large advantage over other people. But as I tell lots of folks, if you take the same student and send them to Yale or send them to the University of Chicago or to NYU or to Stanford even, uh, and then you see where they come out, if the student's that good, they will do better in the job market coming from a better education than they will going to Yale if they have to endure all that silliness. And there is a lot of that going on there. And it turns out that the faculty, I don't think, is in favor of this in any strong sense, although certainly some members might be. But what happens, I don't think they're willing to put up anything against it. There is an institution which has been called by some people who have been at Yale over the years, known as Eli Centrism which sort of thinks that Yale thinks it's so important that the only thing that's matter are the things that go on at Yale. And so they don't have to worry about what's going on in the world so long as two esteemed colleagues have lunch together and talk about the great problems of the world. Uh, I don't think of Yale as being a powerhouse in the general situation that does terrific in clerkships um, in many cases, and many of them are very fine clerks. But I, I, I think it's just wrong when you're talking about a student body, which has maybe 200 graduates, many of whom don't practice of law to think of them being as more influential than, say, the student mass who come out of the University of Texas, whatever their positions is. We got 300 people who are coming out of Georgetown where you get 400 students or NYU where we have somewhere in the high 300s. And most of these people do very, very well. So, I mean, I'm very proud of, you know, in terms of public positions, I've been at NYU now for about 11 years, but I was at the University of Chicago and still am there uh, now for close to 50 years. So I have a lot more graduates who are a lot more senior coming out of the University of Chicago. And, you know, you get very proud of what it turns out that they're able to do, because I think they had a very strong education uh, in what they did, and they actually cared about principal discourse, and they did so. So, you know, you get something like no. Francisco and Jeff Wall, you know, Solicitor General's office, both Chicago graduates, both my students. And, you know, what am I supposed to say? They behaved in an exemplary fashion when they were in a very difficult kind of position. So I just don't think it's going to be, I'm not that gloomy about it. I mean, my sense about Biden, for example, is he doesn't have a particularly strong pro-Yale bias. I think what he does is he basically has a very strong affirmative action agenda. Uh, So I think he's probably nominated three white men, one of whom is gay, uh, out of the 40 or 50 people whom he's nominated. And obviously, this is not a straight merit-blind kind of uh, situation. Not merit-blind, it is merit-blind to some extent. It's not a situation where it's a race-blind or a sex-blind situation. He has a very explicit agenda. He made it clear with Ms. Jackson. And I mean, that, I think, is the major issue to fight uh, as to how many of these preferences we like. Um, You know, you always have to figure out whether it's worth fighting in a particular case. And I think enough Republicans have made up their mind that this is not going to be a particularly vicious or nasty hearing. And I think she will be confirmed without the need for the vice president to compare the cast the uh, deciding vote because several Republicans have already indicated that they will probably vote for. And I think that's a much healthier situation. So I am always looking over my shoulder at this kind of stuff. 
Uh, but I do not basically put myself into panic mode. I think there are enough people on both sides of the political spectrum that think that the Calvin report, the university neutrality with respect to political issues, allowing faculty diversity to express itself privately is the correct position. And so long as there is that position out there, I think what's going to happen is that the, you are going to see uh, every time one of these incidents happens, like at Yale or with Ilya Shapiro at, at Berkeley and so forth, it essentially makes the opposition to this thing even more powerful. And I think it's going to take people who are neutral and independent on the issue and turn them against the left. So I do think that there is some self-defeating feature. Uh, these things happen, but it's not as though there's a swarm of things that's been going on for several years at exactly this kind of rate. I don't think it's going to metastasize and take over the universe. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. You can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at whoer.org every week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.